Welcome to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to be a community of believers proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ through worship, discipleship, and service. Our prayer is that you're transformed by the Word of God in the following message, and we trust that you're using this podcast as a supplement to your participation in the life of a gospel church near you. Let's now hear what God has for us. It's been called the silent killer. It's tasteless, odorless, colorless, and poisonous. Yes, it's carbon monoxide. And the havoc that carbon monoxide wreaks is something that can often be prevented. But what often threatens a human's well-being is the assumption that a potential threat won't happen to you or not taking the steps to protect your life. In other words, sometimes laziness gets the better part of us. And though I think looking out in this dignified crowd, distinguished in every sense, I don't think anyone in their right mind here would flirt with carbon monoxide poisoning. As soon as you'd know, you'd get out. But when it comes to our souls, which is something that we cannot see, we're often tempted to look at others who struggle with certain sins and say, I don't think that's me. That won't happen to me. Or maybe you, you think, I don't say or do, you fill in the blank, whatever sin it is. I don't do it that often. So I'm safe. No matter how diligent you may be in some matters of your heart, the truth about us as humans together is that we're not consistent enough over all categories, all areas of our heart. So we may be strong in some places, attentive in others, and yet in other parts of our lives, we waver, we wane, and we lax. And then we get lethargic, like the effects of carbon monoxide poisoning. And I ask you, have you ever flirted with spiritual dangers? Have you ever just written it off or uh, you know, swept it under the rug and say, I'll deal with it another time? Well, today we come back to the book of Kings, and Lord willing, we will finish the series by the end of the summer. So if you have a Bible, please turn to the book of 2 Kings, 2 Kings, that's in the Old Testament. And just to refresh you a little bit about the feel of Kings, the books of Kings feels like a tennis match for those who are into tennis or, well, I guess pickleball. That's the rage nowadays, right? Uh, the, so, so, you know, the, the going back and forth, right? So in, in, in one sense, you, you hear about the, the southern kingdom of Judah, and then in the next chapter, it's the northern kingdom, and it feels like it's just going back and forth between Samaria and Judah. Well, the last time, which was a couple months ago, we, we left off with a guy named Jehu, who was just originally, he was just a military commander. So he was important, but not important enough to make the, you know, the regular headlines. But indeed, God used Jehu to exterminate a whole royal family, notably Ahab's family. They were really, really bad people. And God told Jehu, basically, you're going to get rid of these people. Do it. And he did. And so who's left standing? Jehu. 
And so God says to Jehu, and you can find this at 2 Kings 10, 30. God says to Jehu, guess what, man? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you be king in your family up to four generations. So Jehu gets busy, and he starts becoming king. And so now we pick up the story here in 2 Kings chapter, five, 2 Kings chapter 13. This is now the final act of the dark drama that is 2 Kings. And I wish I could tell you today that the story is different than the previous stories, but it's not. In fact, you might be tempted, if you've been here for any of these sermons, you might be tempted to close your Bible, maybe roll your eyes, and say, I think I can predict what's coming uh, about this king or that king. But today's chapter, I'm not going to overpromise to you. This, that is the whole point of today's chapter. You take 2 Kings out of the book of Kings, you take it out of the Bible, and you lose the Bible. You might as well lose the whole Bible. This chapter is that important. And so the powerful lesson that God has for us today is that our spiritual lethargy is overcome by God's compassionate grace. Have you ever felt spiritually lethargic? Well, today's chapter, today's story is for you. Now, God's compassionate grace comes into play as we see in the first part of the the chapter an answer to a desperate prayer. In the last half of the chapter, we see the assurance of a prophetic word, just two parts today. So in, I'm going to go ahead and read 2 Kings 13, 1 through 13. Follow along with me, God's word. In the 23rd year of Joash, some of your translations might uh, well have Jehoash, and it gets real dicey here. The son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 17 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them continually into the hand of Haziel, king of Assyria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel. Then Jehoahaz sought the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him. For he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Israel oppressed them. Therefore, the Lord gave Israel a savior, so that they escaped from the hand of the Syrians. And the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin, but walked in them. And the Asherah also remained in Samaria. For there was not left to Jehoahaz an army of more than 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen. The king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like dust at threshing. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all that he did and his might, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoahaz slept with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria and Joash his son reigned in his place. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he had made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. 
Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, and the might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat on his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. And you feel like yawning, right? He slept. See, this guy slept with his father, and I feel like sleeping because this is, this is all that it feels like is happening in, in the book of Kings. Now, this chapter eerily feels similar to the book of Judges. If you're familiar with that book of the Bible or that epoch in Israel's history, when Israel's coming into the promised land, they're supposed to clean house, and they, they don't. Um, and they have some lingering enemies in the land. They were so, so what happens in Judges is they sin. Oh, do they sin? And then comes judgment or oppression from a neighboring country for their sin. And then through that judgment, they're like, oh, we should pray. So they pray a desperate prayer. And what does God do? God raises up a judge to save Israel, a judge, or you can call him a savior all right, to, to save Israel and, and bring them back to a more or less flourishing life free of hostility. So then there's a time of relief. Ah, but Israel's really good at rinse, rinse, wash, and repeat, for they do the same cycle over and over and over again. That's judges. And you think, like, man, are we going back to that? Is, is that what this is? So in verses one through two, in this typical kind of formulaic way of introducing a king in his time and his work, uh, we, we note that in spite of God's faithfulness to Jehu, who was Jehoahaz's father, Jehoahaz continues the, taint, the same tired cycle of his royal predecessors. And know what the text says there in verse 2. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord And look at that last phrase, he did not depart from them. Dale Ralph Ralph Davis, a a preacher I admire and who's made some sense of kings for me, he has said that God's underlying faithfulness is the stitching that holds Israel's history together during these days. Because indeed, no, no king can do that. They've proven themselves. And yet, it's God's compassion that stems the tide of his just anger. God saw Israel's oppression, it says here, from the Syrians, their the northern neighbors. And though they were receiving what they rightly deserved, I mean, Israel has what's coming to them and will have what's coming to them because they were not faithful to the covenant. And so what Deuteronomy said was, is happening. But that's going to get worse. So God pities them by sending a Savior. So Jehoahaz does what every um, formerly religious uh, king does, is he prays. Now, was he, was he a worshiper of Yahweh, the true God of Israel? No, he wasn't. But he knew that Yahweh was powerful, and so he prayed a desperate prayer, the kind of prayer that you and I uh, sometimes might do um, when we're not thinking about God or thanking God for anything, and we just throw up that prayer of desperation. That's what, that's what Jehovah has did. And you know what's surprising? Is God actually listened and heard 
See, God doesn't owe anybody an audience. God doesn't owe you an ear. Especially if you're someone who insists on worshiping anything but the true God. But this is God. One of the effects of this passage is to show you that angle on God's multivalent grace that he is compassionate. And God pities them, and he does what? He sends a savior. This is uh, an interesting phrase. Now, we don't know who this savior was. There are a couple of different options. It could, be, it could be the Assyrians, which were a superpower country, who were going to eventually take over the northern kingdom, but not yet. And maybe they were attacking the Syrians, and so Syria was too busy to mess with you know, Israel because Syria and Assyria were going at it. So maybe it was them. Maybe it was another king. We don't know. But the point is, and it's not important to know who exactly it is, but the point is, is that Israel got a break. And Israel had a time, another time of relief. They were incapable of defending themselves. Note what, chapter, what verse 7 says. This is an interesting point. For there was not left to Jehoahaz an army of more than 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen. For the king of Syria destroyed them, made them like the dust of threshing. This is an interesting phrase, the whole dust thing, because that's a, that was a phrase floating around, especially from the big army of the Assyrians, who said, that's what we're going to turn you into. We're going to turn you into dust. It might even have echoes of Genesis chapter 3 and the curses given to Adam when God tells him, from dust you came and dust you shall return. If you uh, know Spanish, which few of you do, you know the term for dust is polvo, where we get uh, through Latin, the term pulverize. And to pulverize something is to totally turn it into grain, into powder. And this is, this is what happened to the Israelite army, essentially, is that they were whittled down to just barely enough, barely enough resources to defend themselves. They couldn't defend themselves. This was the state of Israel's army. But even after this like rescue from God, they returned to business as usual. So they escaped, verse 5, from the hand of the Assyrians. And listen to this. And the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. The writer clearly didn't have to say that. Why say that? Because he wants you to feel the lethargy, the apathy of, some, of, of these people who were saved after being delivered. They just got their necks saved. And then they just went back to life as normal. Nevertheless, verse 6, they did not depart from the sins. There you go again. They did not depart. Remember, that was said about Jehoahaz just a few verses earlier. He didn't depart. They didn't depart. They walked in the sins of Jeroboam. And the, and the Asherah also remained in Samaria. Now, you've probably seen that. You wonder, what's, a, what's Asherah? Is that a, a place, a thing? And Asherah, think of it as almost like a totem pole in indigenous cultures. It was, it was like a wooden beam that was uh, symbolic and meant to be a symbol of worship, a place where uh, you could bow down before. But the point here is that even though Israel had been saved from the, from the Syrians. Once again, they went about life as normal, and they didn't think much about the grace of God to them. 
And standing about in the middle of their way that they passed by every day was a symbol of idolatry. That's a very telling phrase. The Asher remained in Samaria. You know what that says is that God's grace didn't change anything. And that's scary. Because right here in this passage, though you don't have a direct statement about the character of God, I want you to notice just, just how you can see it on, the, on a page of English ink here. Verse 3, and the anger of the Lord. And then look down to verse 4. What does Jehoahaz seek after? The favor of the Lord. Don't let this bypass your notice this morning. How God's attributes perfectly work together, anger and favor. One does not cancel out the other. Both are coexistent. And they can own these kinds of attributes coexist perfectly in the one true God. When you bring it down to a human, how many times do you see anger and grace working together perfectly? Rarely, if ever, right? But in God, they are together. See, God's mercy and grace are often used interchangeably. Mercy is not getting what we deserve, and grace is giving us what we don't deserve. And the effect of the two is that mercy is supposed to melt your heart, and grace is supposed to gratify you. And to experience God's love like this, to be spared from yet another incursion from the enemies, should propel anyone to change. It should have, it should have caused the the, the Israelites to go into their sheds and get out the axe and tear down that Asherah pole. It's like that. But they didn't. They took the approach that all we needed was a little therapy. We don't really need transformation. They wanted the perks of being related to the covenant God without the process. See, God's attributes work together like this so beautifully, but in spite of and against our sin. God's attributes work in spite of and against our sin. And the prevailing sin here is idolatry. And you get through this chapter the sense that idolatry is quite underwhelming. Idolatry promises cheap thrills when in reality... It's deadening. It makes you helpless and lethargic. What does this king do? He really has, he doesn't have an army to stand up. And he knows they're going to come again. And so he, he, he tries his best. He says a prayer. Idolatry makes life boring. Verse 2, verse 6, verse 11 speak of the fact that they did not depart so in the Old Testament, when, in stories, when you get phrases like this that repeat, it is making a point. And the point I think here is that idolatry may have a temporary thrill, but it's really boring in the big scheme of things. And so when you read verses 8 through 13, now, you know, the whole, all right, now the rest of his acts, and then his son took his place, and then verse 10 through 13, if I were being irreverent, I would say, well, that's pretty boring, it's pretty humdrum, ho-hum. Who cares? He came, he went. He came, he went. Oh, well. 
And this is the effect of idolatry on a people. It just makes things kind of ho-hum boring. It kind of reminds me of a character in the Lord of the Rings in the Twin Towers. The king of Rohan, his name is Theoden, had come under the spell and the influence of Saruman, who worked for Sauron, the enemy. And King Theoden, you see a picture of him at his worst. This is him having totally come under the influence of Sauron. This is how we are spiritually when we believe lies, when we feel like there's no more fight in us. You, you may have a good front here, but your soul is like that. And you need, you need a Gandalf to, to, for an intervention, which is what happened to Theoden later. And he was re-energized and rejuvenated for a fight. I want to ask you something. What symbols or practices, perhaps from your old life, are still standing in your life, like an Asherah pole? You've experienced the grace of God in so many ways. This was alluded to earlier. We could spend all day thanking God for what he has done for us. But what has that done for you in changing anything? What still stands as a monument, as a, a totem to your past life? Because you're not that anymore. What have you tolerated over time? Or perhaps, what have you become tired of resisting? You know, earlier in your Christian life, you had the, the energy. <laughs> you, you, had, you had the resolve to, to fight sin, but something snapped over time. Maybe it was just a process over time or some major event that just like, it, it made you just want to throw your gloves off and just not fight bare knuckle, but just give up fighting altogether. And I think all you need from the life of Jehoahaz and his throwing up a desperate prayer and considering Israel's reaction is that right now, if you want to leave with something to take away, I want you to think of the most obvious thing in your life that still stands as a testimony to deadness, to lethargy, to no fight, to the past life. Think of that. What, what comes to mind right away? And I want you to get your axe out and get to work. Today, just to take the one thing. You don't have to get everything, but go for the most obvious thing and treat it like it's dead. Put it to death. Christian, could it be that part of your whole spiritual lethargy is that you want the promised results of the Christian life without the rugged process of the Christian life? There is no crown without the cross. And if you're not a Christian, maybe you've been wrestling with the claims of Christianity. Maybe you're almost there. Maybe you're just thinking like, I'm here and I think I can pick out the inconsistencies of your worldview. Well, and I'm sure you, you will see things that indeed don't make sense and are, might appear inconsistent. But if you're open 
my, my dear friend. I encourage you, even if you don't know how to pray, just pray. God may hear you, and if he does, he will give you the one Savior you need forever. Don't treat God, the God of the Bible, the God of history, the true God. Don't treat him like a therapist because he's a whole lot more than that. He is a transformer. He will change your life from the inside out. That's what you want. You may not be able to put your finger on it. You may not even be able to, to verbalize it. But what you want is what you really need, and that's transformation. And only God can do that. So don't just pray like God is a genie. Pray God to come into your life and stay. And he will help you cut down the Asherah poles. He will help you with those areas and those pockets of spiritual laziness that you've given up on or maybe that you haven't seen. Well, we move on. We just saw how God's gracious compassion overcomes spiritual lethargy by answering a desperate prayer. Now let's notice the other factor poking above the surface in the assurance given through a prophetic word verses 14 to 25. We haven't heard from Elisha since chapter 9. A lot's happened. And now he pops up for his like special cameo. You know how like uh, when actors get old, and you're like, where do they go? And then all of a sudden, they got like two minutes on a, your favorite TV show. Like, oh, this is kind of like the, this is kind of how it feels. Elisha comes back. This is one last time. And note what another desperate king does when his back is against the wall. I will read verses 14 to 25. Now, when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, open the wind window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he, that's Elisha, said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek, which was the border town, until you have made an end of them. And he said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. And the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you'll strike down Syria only three times. So Elisha died and they buried him. Now, bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Now Haziel, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned toward them. Why? Because of his covenant, not with David, but with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
The Lord would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. Now, when Hazael, king of Syria, died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Then Jehoahaz, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities that he had taken from Jehoahaz, his father, in war. Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. And you're thinking, okay, cool. You hit the ground three times. The prophet got mad at you. He said three times is all, and then it came true. Okay, can we go now? <laughs> no, no, this, this gets good. First of all, the fact that Elisha was still alive was a token of God's grace to the idolatrous king. Jehoash could bank on the fact that this king, was, this prophet, the man of God, was still around, but he was on his deathbed. He was well nigh dying. And so what King Jehoash does is he comes, to, he comes to Elisha with the same words that Elisha spoke to Elijah, his predecessor, his mentor, back in 2 Kings chapter 2, when Elijah, well, he didn't die. Elijah got mysteriously just taken up to heaven in a whirlwind and left there. And, and, and as he's going up, Elisha cries the same thing out that Jehoash cries out to Elisha. My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Which, I mean, that's not usually how we like, pay homage to somebody in our day and age. But this was a, a tender, uh, this was something that was tender to express his grief and to express what was true. To say that this man was the chariot of Israel and its horsemen was to say, Elisha, you're the real reason that Israel's together. You're the real reason that we can fight. Elisha, in a sense, was the secret sauce. It doesn't matter. Their, their army had basically become decimated. And King Joash is according this kind of honor to Elisha. But you have to wonder, was he really contrite? Was Jehoahash really, was he really contrite? Or did he merely just want out of a sticky situation? You know, his dad died and now he's left wondering if the Syrians are going to come again. This, is, this, this guy's scared. In the last moments of Elisha's life, Elisha basically had to hold this guy's hand. This is kind of comical. I tried to read it in a way that uh, you saw like how, in a sense, ridiculous this is. Open the window. He opens it. Pull out an arrow. He pulls out an arrow. And he's like, saddle up. And Elisha puts his hand on him as a means of blessing. Proverbs 21, 31 says, The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. And Elisha was saying as one last hurrah in his life, in a sense, the victory that you're going to have comes from Yahweh. And through this last symbolic prophetic word, Elisha is giving him a permanent exit from a perpetual oppression. Like, who wants to keep fighting the same enemy all the time? Right? The armies turn into microcells and, you know, into this group and that group. And no, 
We want done with it. And Elisha says, okay, hey, uh, now that you shot the arrow, now take the, uh, the last three, take the arrow and just tap, tap them on the ground. And you kind of get this sense. And he says, okay, he took out the arrows. And he hit the ground three times. And then Elisha gets mad. And you're wondering, like, wait a minute. Don't cut the guy a little slack, man. I mean, how did he know that he should have hit the ground five or six times? It's because he was tired. He didn't believe that Yahweh could give the victory. And in his spiritual lethargy, he just, he just apathetically tapped the ground with these things. And what he could have done, knowing the, prof, the prophetic word, knowing that the Lord gives the victory, he could have just tap, 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 tap until, until he broke those arrows, but he didn't. So Elisha says, you're going to get exactly what you tapped out for. And that came true. Jehoahash's lethargic tapping of the arrows represents something. It represents how constantly Israel, Israel comes up short in their obedience to God. You did it three times, you'll get the benefit three times. And such lethargy locks in their endless defeat and imminent disaster. They would not be done with Syria because of that. And then, okay, so that's not enough. Then, then you have verses 20 to 21, which, if you want, you could just put your fingers over that and skip to the 22, to the rest of the chapter, and it flows seamlessly. So uh, liberal scholars or scholars who, who like to take the Jeffersonian approach to the Bible, which is, you know, snip, 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 and cut out the parts that they don't like, they would easily do this with verses 20 and 21 because, as, as one guy on my shelf said, you know, this is just a, this is just a fable. It's just, it's just a tale. So what it's saying, in a sense, is that April showers bring May marauders, which, which, which in that time, springtime, um, uh, you know, springtime, <laughs> it wasn't the you know time for you know cute dresses and you know nice dates and stuff. Springtime is like when the when kings and armies they they ratcheted up. They got ready for war. You remember David in Second Samuel eleven? It was the time for kings to go to war. And what did he do? He got lazy. And long story short, he committed adultery. He was lazy. But see, see the point is that, that springtime. That's when you know it's like a like. The new uh, MMA season or something like that. This is, this is when we fight. But why is this little story placed here? Like I said, you could cover it up and you would still understand the chapter. I know this is, a, this is a, 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 an overused word, but I believe the, the, this passage, this, these two verses here are meant to disrupt the hopeless notion that the deadening effect of idolatry is endless. You just come from all this like lackluster report of this king and that king. He did that, he did that, oh, whatever. And all of a sudden you got marauding bands and they're going to bury a guy and they're like, oh man, we don't want this. And they just happen to be passing by Elisha's tomb and they throw him in. When this happened exactly, I don't know, it must have been enough time for uh, Elisha to, you know, rot and just be bones, a skeleton, and they throw him in. And immediately he comes, this dead guy comes to life. Now, if I were the guys carting this dead dude around, 
and, and running for my life, I'd be looking back and hoping, not hoping, I'd be running back and looking for Moabites, <laughs> not the guy that we just tossed in the grave running on our heels. But this was what was happening. The miracle from Elisha's tomb placed right here is a glimpse of God's future redemption and victory over death. Israel had a national enemy in Syria, or Aram, as some of your translations say. And Israel, and we today, we have a personal enemy in death. And through these two seemingly random verses, God communicates to us that even in death, God brings life. You're reading the story as an Israelite in exile, and you're like, when is this going to end? And all of a sudden you get this, this little story, and God's just saying, like, you're going to hit rock bottom, you're going to die, and I'm going to bring life. Now we come to the end of the chapter, verses 22 to 25. This ho-hum chapter, if you will, ends with a rather plain statement that the prophet's word comes to pass. You know, Haziel uh, does his thing, and Ben-Hadad, his son. But a glimmer of hope shoots through in verse 23, and it's worth reading this verse again. But the Lord was gracious to them, that's Israel, and had compassion on them. And the Lord turned toward them. Why? Because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the Lord would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. Now get this. Even when God's chosen people are enduring the rightly deserved curses of the covenant, God's compassion never ends. What a beautiful statement of light, of hope. You, you, you like these verses by themselves on T-shirts and coffee mugs and memes. But in their right context, in the, the dark context, this shines like a diamond. What's truly amazing about this chapter is that God is faithful to the northern kingdom, the non-Davidic kingdom, the one that didn't have the promise of the Messiah. God is faithful to that kingdom based on his covenant, not with David, but with the patriarchs. Isn't that something? And the northern kingdom is the first to go. It's coming next week. We're going to see it. Pastor Eric's going to preach on that, and we, I'll be taking a break. Some other guys will be here to preach. You'll see. Northern kingdom is coming to its end. But even if the prophets of God die, you know what doesn't die? God's word. And one thing that you can pull from this kind of mysterious chapter is that if you cling to the prophetic word, you will live. You will live. I mean, Judah and Israel, they're headed for inevitable doom. Just go to the end of the book. The next few chapters, like I said, Israel's done. By the time you get to chapter 25, Judah's done. It's just not looking good. They're, they're doomed. The word of the prophet carries on. But even in spite of the illustrious careers of Elijah and Elisha, they were not enough to transform the hearts of God's people, which screams for the need of a more powerful prophet. I love what P.J. Lightheart says. This is 
This is good. I couldn't have said it better. He said, the marauding bands assault Israel. Though Judah is thrown into the grave with Israel, there still is hope for resurrection, but only through contact with the prophets who bear the word in the presence of God. Even though prophets die, Israel can be saved by clinging to the prophetic word. If Israel heeds the words of the prophet, even death will not be the end. What a word. What a word that death is not the final word. And I want, us to, I want to call our attention to one of the most mysterious passages of the New Testament. You can turn there if you'd like, uh, or you can just follow along because you may be familiar with it. It's tucked away in Matthew's passion narrative in chapter 27 of Matthew, verses 51 to 53. In it, we have Jesus dying, and he, he dies, he gives up the ghost, he's dead. And Matthew records this really strange event that when Jesus died, the veil of the temple tore in two, and then it says the, the graves in Jerusalem, they broke open, and then when he rose from the dead, people came to life out of those graves and started appearing to the other believers in Jerusalem. Now, you can, you can find a lot of theories about what that meant. There are people who take it figuratively. Uh, they, they, they write it off as fable. There's a lot of different p- possible things. But I think one thing you cannot deny about that occurrence, which I would take to be historical. When Matthew was writing, I don't think those people were still around you know, still testifying. But he knew something, and he puts it in there. And what Matthew is doing, and this is simply the point about that, is Matthew's connecting the undeniable chain between the death and resurrection of Christ. In a way, he's saying, it's not that long. Hang on. Just wait. He, you're not, if you're like wondering, like, what did he, what did these, where did those people go? What did they say? You're missing the point. The point you're supposed to gather from that ancient text, that story, is that the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ are to be seen, in a sense, as one in the whole of his work, which screams for the need for Jesus Christ. That day when Jesus died, Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies of Scripture. He became the Lamb sacrificed. And he was crucified for us. And you know what? No one, no one could do what Jesus did. Now, we we, we try to emphasize evangelism here, as you you heard earlier. And as we train um, our church about evangelism, sometimes I catch myself, or maybe you've caught yourself saying and witnessing to somebody and telling somebody about Jesus that, you know, God sent Jesus to die the, the death that we deserved in our place um, so that I've heard this, so that we wouldn't have to. Now, that's only partially true. But you know what the truth is? Is we couldn't die sufficiently. We couldn't. And that's why you need Jesus. And I love what John Owen says in his book, Communion with God. It says this, Christ was crucified for us, therefore, Sin was crucified in us. So, you, if you are a believer, 
As Paul picks up on later in Romans, sin is dead to you. You are dead to sin. And I have to say, thank God for Jesus Christ and thank God for Jesus' diligence to the end. What if Jesus had done all those things? Sin, I mean, just everything. But the cross didn't, like he somehow got out of that. We wouldn't be here. We would be hopeless. And so I want to bring it down to this, beloved. Do you feel defeated or discouraged by your spiritual lethargy? And maybe like this has struck some chords in your heart and you're, as we say, like under conviction, you're feeling something here. And now you're thinking, you're overwhelmed because you're like, I don't know where to start. Let me just talk to you as a Christian. Maybe all you need to do today in response to the hope and the grace, God's compassionate grace, is instead of indulging your comforts and passions, maybe the Holy Spirit here today is prompting you to deny yourself in a specific area. Maybe that's what you need to do today. Maybe that is the proper response. You don't have to go and kill every single sin, but as the Holy Spirit prompts you. And you know what? You are not merely working in your own flesh. You, Christian, if you have the Holy Spirit, you have resurrection power in you to defeat sin. I think we forget that. I I, I think if we haven't forgotten it, we tend not to believe it. Like, I mean, sure, we say all the right stuff in our songs and our creeds and stuff, right? Uh, but, but, but when it comes to rolling this thing out on Monday, does, does your Christianity have the treads to roll the resurrection over those areas in your life? Now, I want to speak to us as a church. Yeah, we've been a church for 130 years. That's a miracle in and of itself. Sure, we've made some progress. But I, I want to encourage us not to think that we have arrived as a church or, or that we somehow are more faithful than XYZ church over there down the street. And so as a church, I want to caution us. I want us to take axes to where we together have become proud and comfortable as a church. And I can go on and on and on. Like, how does this apply in your home, dads, moms? Where have you laxed? And I'm not here to slap your hands and say, just do better. Come on, you can at least do one, one rep. That's all I'm asking. No, no. Because the hope for that one rep, you may not have that, at least in your mind and your energy, but you do have it in you through the Holy Spirit. There's an empty tomb to prove That spiritual lethargy has an end itself. So what lifts us from the endless cycle of ignoring our sinful patterns? It is God's compassionate grace to us in Christ. That is the hope out of our lethargy. Now, this is real. It's it's right now. So I I, want to encourage you to do this. 
Bring your dead works. Bring those things that you know, like, bring them. Throw them into the tomb of Jesus. Toss them in. Pray desperately. Wait patiently for God to renew you afresh to experience the thrill of the resurrection. God is going to come through. He is going to give you victory. He is going to restore you. He will lift you up from lethargy to new life. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, to take on these ancient texts uh, is daunting enough. And we believe them, Lord, to be from you, from your Holy Spirit. And we pray, God, that, that anything that has been said that could be potentially misleading or misconstrued, I, I pray that it would be quickly forgotten. And I, I pray that standing over and above a preacher's homily will, will be the very word himself, Jesus, and that the Holy Spirit sent from Jesus would preach a far better message than I ever could have preached on this passage. And even now, Lord, as we move from preached word to the word displayed, visualized, we pray that Jesus would meet us here in surprising and comforting ways. For it's in his name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. We hope you are encouraged by God's word. And for more information about joining us for a worship service or taking your next steps with us, please visit ASCCChicago.org.